0: If you have a copy of the scriptures with you this morning, you could turn uh, with me to Psalm 32. And if Pastor Tyler asks, I am using the Bible, he gifted me last week, so. (laughs) He told me to use it, so I'm using it. As you arrive in Psalm 32, the, the focus of our time together this morning I have a few questions for us to consider. Do you ever think about how much you are driven by what makes you happy? That the choices we often make in life don't hinge on uh, what is necessarily rational or right or even wise, but on what would make us happy or, conversely, what would make us unhappy. And the world knows this even if we would sometimes forget ourselves. There are whole industries that are built upon this idea, whether it is happiness through food or clothing or possessions, uh, through beauty or health, happiness through entertainment. But before you think I'm going to say that the pursuit of happiness is wrong, let me assure you from the onset, I don't think any of us in this room could stop pursuing happiness, our own happiness, even if we wanted to. I don't think the problem we would find is us pursuing happiness. If there is a problem, the problem is pursuing happiness and all those things which could never provide that happiness. But the good news is that God wants you to be happy. And more than that, God provides the means to that true happiness, a happiness that never disappoints, that always delivers, that doesn't depend on the circumstances of your life, what you have or don't have. C.S. Lewis put it this way in his sermon, The Weight of Glory. He says there, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer." Of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. So, what does make for happiness, or rather, what does make for a happy life? Well, let's read Psalm 32 and see what the Lord would say about that. Let's stand together in honor and reverence of God's word. When I get done reading Psalm 32, I will say, This is the word of the Lord. And together we'll say, Thanks be to God because we are thankful. For God's word. Psalm 32. A maskil of David. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silence, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Selah. I acknowledge my sin to you. I did did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord, incline our hearts to you this morning, not to prideful gain or false motive, Open our eyes to behold wonderful things in your word. Unite our hearts, which are so often divided, to fear your name. And would you, Lord, out of your grace and kindness, satisfy us this morning with your steadfast love and faithfulness, we pray. Amen. Please be seated. So, what makes for a happy life? Well, we see it at the onset of this psalm, that word blessed. Blessed simply means happy. But what we want to be wary of is thinking of this word happy in a common everyday usage, which is primarily based on feelings or circumstances. We know it, do we not? We can feel happy. When life seems to be going well one moment, and then unhappy just as quickly as our circumstances change. Perhaps we're tired, or we're around difficult people, or we just didn't get our way. Whatever it might be, our happiness comes and goes like a mist. But the biblical meaning of happiness is much weightier than the superficial way that the world may use it or we may even think about it. Blessed, or happiness, here refers to a happiness that is the result of true well-being, ultimate welfare, a whole flourishing, a whole life flourishing, often despite outward circumstances. I'll say that again. Blessed refers to a happiness that is the result of true well-being, ultimate welfare, whole life flourishing. And the theme of blessedness runs throughout the entire Bible. For example, if we were to turn back a few pages to the beginning of the Psalter, Psalm 1, that word blessed is the very first word that we read there. We read there, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, who stands not, or, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and... On his law, he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. And all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but they are like chaff that the wind drives away. So notice that this blessing, this happiness of that man, is not ultimately found in his outward circumstances. For we read there, That he is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. And all that he does, he prospers. So this tree has a source of nourishment, of welfare, that goes beyond his present circumstances. Or we might recognize this idea of blessedness or happiness. And what we read earlier from the Beatitudes, part of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount... The word beatitude comes from the Latin word, which means blessed. And if you recall what Dan read for us earlier, who were those happy ones? It's maybe not the ones that we would expect. These are the ones who are described as being poor in spirit. They're the ones who are mourning. They are those who are even being persecuted and reviled and slandered. So know this blessedness of which the Bible talks about This true happiness cannot come from our circumstances in life, which begs the question, where does true happiness come from? And of all the places that we could go in Scripture to talk about this word, blessed, I think the place for us to begin is in Psalm 32. Not that these other places which address how one is to be blessed are wrong, but without what we read in Psalm 32... There can be no lasting happiness, no means of blessing, in fact. So as we read again from Psalm 32, verse 1, what is the secret or what is the key to a happy life? And what we read there is the key to a happy life is being forgiven of our sin. Isn't that what we read here? Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. And I think this is something that even a child knows, although most of the children have left now. (laughs) Perhaps you remember a similar experience to this when you were a child and your parents had told you to stay away from something, don't touch this thing that was important or valuable, and you didn't listen, and you broke it, and there was no way that you could hide it. It was broken, and it could not be put back together. And you felt terrible about it. There were probably tears in your eyes as you went to your mother or your father, and hopefully this is the experience for many of us when your mother or father said, it's okay, I forgive you. And in that moment, all the weight of what you had done just comes away and you're like, ah, oh, I've been forgiven of this. The, the weight is gone. That's this happiness. Or perhaps even a more recent experience with your friends. If we're around our friends long enough, you probably have said something, which as soon as we said it, we wish we could take back. It was hurtful. It was rude. It was unkind. Perhaps it was even something that you had promised to do for a friend. They were relying upon you, and you failed to do that, and you feel terrible about it. You feel like there's nothing you could do. The the moment has passed. You can't take the words back. You can't go back in time and fulfill that promise that you had for them, and you go to your friend, and you're like, I'm so sorry that I did this. Please forgive me. And your friend, instead of holding it over you, And berating you says, I forgive you, I forgive you, it's okay. And that feeling that washes over you in that time, that is the kind of happiness that the psalmist is talking about here. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. That's the happiness that the Bible is talking about here. Specifically here, this idea of forgiven with the transgression is that your transgression has in fact been lifted or borne away. Or, in the second part of verse 1, the sin is covered. That means it's been put out of sight. It's not seen anymore. And There are many Christians who would assent to this truth with their mouths, but may not live in this reality in their hearts. And because they do not, they lead dour and sad lives. And I wonder... How many in the hearing of these words this morning would describe themselves as such? Kind of morose or moody or irritable, more curmudgeonly than Christian. And I wonder if we are that way or we can tend toward that disposition because we don't often think about the reality of being forgiven. We don't feast upon and savor each bite of that nourishing meal, that nourishing truth. We don't sing that glad song of joy. In short, we don't preach the gospel to ourselves. Instead, we are prone to take that aspect of forgiveness for granted. And we don't meditate upon that rich truth. And so we ask ourselves this morning, have we moved past the blessing, the happiness of forgiveness, and moved on to other things? There's a lot I need to accomplish in my life. A lot of things I need to do. And many of those things, I would say, are for God. They're for my sanctification. I'm I'm all about the doing of life, the doing of ministry. And in doing so, we have, instead of receiving daily and moment by moment what God has done for us, we're preoccupied with what we are doing for God. And this is not to say that we should solely focus and ultimately focus on our sin and being forgiven of our sin. But as often as we consider our sin, we would consider the one who has forgiven our sin. And who has forgiven our sin? Well, the answer comes to us there in verse 2. Blessed is the man against whom God counts no iniquity. And so we consider, as we consider our sin, the fount of This happiness, the fount of being blessed. We consider the gospel of the glory of the blessed God, which we read about in 1 Timothy 1.11. The gospel of the glory of the blessed God. The word blessed there means happy. So we're considering the happy God. For without God forgiving transgressions and covering our sin and not counting iniquity, there would be none who are blessed. For it is God alone who forgives sin. In fact, the idea of forgiving sin is inextricably tied to who God is and how he displays his glory. Perhaps the passage is coming to mind even right now, Exodus 34, let's, let's turn there. Even if it wasn't coming to mind, <laughs> it should come to mind now. Exodus 34. And there we are seeing, in the end of verse 33, Moses has asked and pleaded with God, please show me your glory. And the Lord says, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim my, before you my name, the Lord. So the Lord is going to proclaim his glory to Moses by making his goodness pass before him and proclaiming his name, the Lord. But in chapter 34, we read of this actual event happening, 34 beginning in verse 5 of Exodus. The Lord descended in a cloud and stood with him. So here we read of the Lord declaring his name to Moses. But names in the Bible, and especially the Old Testament, are more than referring a way of referring to someone. Names describe someone's very character. So here we're reading about God's very character, and we see his character as the one to be merciful and gracious, and is the one who forgives iniquity and transgression, and sin. Those very words that we read from Psalm 32. So the truly happy one is the one who has experienced the happy God's mercy and grace. The one who has experienced and seen God's slowness to anger. The one who has tasted of the Lord's steadfastness, his love, his faithfulness, and forgiving sin. And would we strive To taste and see the Lord's goodness in that way. But there's actually more to this blessedness than simply being forgiven of sin. There's not less than that, but there is more to that. If we're back in Psalm 32, we read, Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, yes, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. We wonder, where does this come from? What does that have to do with anything that I'm reading about here? We ought not gloss over that phrase, for these two ideas are connected. There is no blessing where there is deceit. And there is blessing where there is no deceit. There are those who do see their sin, but attempt to deceive oneself or foolishly even attempt to deceive God. That's so what we read about in 1 John 1 1.8. The apostle there writes, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So this blessed man is one who walks in the truth of who he, he is before God, not as someone who is clean and pure and holy, but as someone who is a sinner. And he is not deceiving himself in that regard. But we see that it was not always this this way for David. As we continue reading in Psalm 32 and verses 3 and 4, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Selah. And so now this picture becomes clearer. And these verses explain the context and the contrast of verses 1 and 2. That word for explains the contrast. We see now that this happiness, this blessedness that David can proclaim in verses 1 and 2 stands in contrast to the affliction that he was previously experiencing. What does this affliction look like? It's more than just feeling kind of down in the dumps. It's bones wasting away. It's groaning all day long. It's his strength being dried up as by the heat of summer. And we see that even as God is the source of the psalmist's happiness, God too was the source of his affliction. Verse 4, For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. This is God's mighty hand under which we ought to humble ourselves, the apostle Peter writes in his first epistle: "For God opposes the proud; he is against the proud, but he gives grace to the humble." But why, if David is a is a sinner, um, why was his hand heavy upon the king at this time? And let's not overlook this: it wasn't because he was a sinner. It was because he was silent about his sin. And in his silence, he was trying to deceive God. He was silent in his confession. Verse 5, I acknowledge my sin to you. This is to God. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah. So now we see the full picture here. David had been deceiving himself. He was keeping silent about his sin toward God. But God knows our sin. He is the one we've been reading about in Revelation with eyes like a flame of fire. There's nothing hidden from him. He sees our innermost thoughts. God is the one for whom the darkness is not dark. Psalm 139 says, where can I go from you? Where can I flee from you? And there's nowhere. So, yes, God did see David's sin. And the righteous judge of all the earth, the holy, holy, holy God, was against David. His, he- his hand was heavy upon David. David, though, humbles himself. I think a lot of times we don't want to acknowledge our sin because we are prideful. (laughs) I got it all together, God, (laughs) or to others. I don't need to humble myself, but we see here that may have even been the case for the king. Who would have more reason to be prideful than any of us. But he humbles himself before his God. He acknowledges his sin. He confesses his transgressions to the Lord. But let's notice two indispensable facts of this confession that he has, which would be helpful for us to remember. The first is, in his confession, he has ownership of his sin. This is not sin in some general or generic sense. It's not a rationalizing of his behavior. But he says, I acknowledge my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity, so this is my sin. He is responsible for the sin he himself has committed. Secondly, the one we chiefly confess our sins to is the Lord. Indeed, there are those to whom we ought to ask forgiveness in our sin, to seek reconciliation but we dare not lose sight of this, that all sin is first and foremost a sin against God. In his life, David committed a great sin with Bathsheba, and he confesses there, when he's confronted by by Nathan, it is against the Lord, and the Lord only, that he had sinned. Which we have a hard time stomaching that. It's like, well... No. Is that, is that the case? Is it, is it only against the Lord? But as we read Scripture, we see that this is not to minimize David's sin against Bathsheba or Uriah, her husband, those who are made in the image of God, but it's precisely because they were made in the image of God and he was made in the image of God that it was a sin at all. It was a sin against God because he was the one who has made us and made those in his image. And so when we sin against one another, we're sinning against those made in God's image, against God himself. So there can be no true reconciliation with one another unless there's a first reconciliation before God. And the third thing I would point out to us here that we see is that not only is David taking ownership of his sin, not only is he confessing his sin to the Lord, but look at the word that he uses there in verse 5 to refer to God. It is Lord, L-O-R-D, all capital letters. This is the covenant name of God as revealed in Exodus 34 that we read earlier. So God in his sin is appealing to God's very character. He's reminding himself that you said, Lord, you are a God who is merciful. You are a God who is gracious. You are the one who forgives sin and iniquity and transgression. And so I go to you not on the basis of my character, which I know is corrupt, but I go to you on the basis of your character. We remember that as we go to the Lord, it is in his character because of who he is, not because of who we are, that he would forgive our sin. And we do read that the Lord did forgive David's sin. First John 1 John 1.9, we read, If we confess our sins, he, God that is, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And we should drink that truth in. <laughs> he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But maybe we wouldn't feel that way about others (laughs) when God is forgiving other people's sin. When God is, there's someone that sinned against us. They've wronged us. No, for that person, I, I want the full weight of the law to go down on them. God, be just and punish them for their sin. And I think, to some extent, we would be right in thinking that because is it just to overlook sins? And we think of a police officer who would see someone committing a crime and the police officer just looks the other way. Would we say that police officer is being just or would we say that police officer is being lawless? If committing a crime is worthy of punishment, how much more criminal is it to not punish those who are committing the crime? So how can, if we take this seriously and we think about this, how can God be just to just, you've committed a sin, you've transgressed my law, it's all good, you're forgiven. How can God be just and holy and righteous and yet overlook our sin? In some ways, it's a mystery to us how a holy God could forgive unholy sin. but we go to God's word to find the answer to this. Let's go to Romans 3, where the apostle brings up this very issue, Romans 3, beginning in verse 21. Here we read, but now the righteousness, and we use that word righteousness in these verses. We're talking about God's holiness, in fact, his justice, which we've just been talking about. How can God be just? But now the holiness and righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. For all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So this word, to justify, means to declare not guilty. It's like you're guilty of your sin. Here we read that God is saying, no, you're, you are justified. You are not guilty. How can God be just, righteous, and yet be the justifier, declare not guilty of those who are ungodly? How could God pass over these former sins how can he forgive our sins today? How can he not punish us as we deserve? And we read here, it's because he was going to pour out his just wrath and anger of our sins on Jesus on the cross. That's what we read there in verse 23 and 24, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's none who can stand before God and say, I'm not a sinner. I've attained to your glory. He says, And are justified by the gift, are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation. This word propitiation is, uh, refers to a sacrifice that satisfies God's wrath. And taking that wrath and making it favorable. So how is it that God can be holy and just and righteous yet overlook my sin? It's because Christ has been put forth as the sacrifice that my sin deserves, and God was satisfied with Christ's sacrifice and His anger, His wrath that my sin deserves, the condemnation that it deserves is now satisfied, and God now looks on me favorably. So not God is not just or is not unjust. He is just. He is faithful. So then we come to it. How does this blessedness come to us? How does this happiness come to us? Yes, it comes through the forgiveness of our sins. We know this. We, it comes through looking to the one who can provide that forgiveness. But ultimately, at its apex, it is Christ that should fill our gaze and our hearts as we consider our sin. For Christ is the one that we see hinted at in these verses. For he was the one who bore our transgressions on the cross. He carried them away. Is Jesus Christ, he's the one whose love covers our sins, so God does not see it anymore. Jesus Christ is the one who is accounted as unrighteous, even though he wasn't, so that the Lord would not count our iniquity. In fact, that he would count us righteous, even though we are not. And even as the King David experienced God's heavy hand, it was Jesus who experienced the fullness of God's heavy hand. He was the one we read about in Isaiah who was crushed and put to grief. He was the one who was wounded for our transgression. The Lord had laid upon Jesus Christ all of our iniquity if we are trusting in him. So how can we know this blessedness? How does this blessedness come to us? It comes to one, as we read about in Psalm 32, who acknowledges our sin to God. We don't cover our iniquity. It comes to those who confess their transgressions to the Lord, the one whose heavy hand is upon them, because we try to cover our iniquity. And you notice here, it says that in, um, we had tried to cover our iniquity But it is the Lord who then covers the iniquity. As we uncover it, he then covers it in Christ. Blessing is for the one who has righteousness apart from the law. We think about the law. We think about these things that we can do to prove ourselves to be holy and righteous and just. But the law was just meant to show how sinful that we are. How we can't measure up. So we can't find our happiness through the law. No, it's a happiness reserved for those who have faith in Christ, who did fulfill the law himself. It's happiness for those who are justified, declared not guilty by his grace as a gift, by faith. This blessedness is for the one who has stopped trying to work to cover his sin, stopped trusting in his own righteousness, his own goodness, and instead trust in Christ. Read further down there if you're still in Romans. Paul says it again and a little more clearly. Romans 4, beginning in verse 4. Now to the one who works, and I would say by nature we are ones who want to work. We want to work for our salvation, we want to prove ourselves. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So believing is not a work. Believing is is a receiving, as we may have heard before. Verse 6, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord does not Count his sin. And there we see Paul referencing and quoting Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2. What's the picture that we get from Psalm 32, verse 5 verses, and what we get from Romans 3 and 4? The picture is that we're in this court of law and we are on trial for our crimes. And as the prosecution lays out their case against us, every charge that they say is proved true. And they say, well, you've done these things. These are lawless deeds that you've committed. And you say, oh, ah, yeah, that's true, but I, I can do better. I can keep that. And then, no, it's like, well, you, you, ha- you haven't done it. You've, you try to keep it, and you're, you haven't done it. Because there's even deeds that you have, should have done that you failed to do. It's like, well, no, I, I'll, I'll try to do what I should do. I'll try not to do what I shouldn't do. And then there's even more evidence against you. Because it's not just our actions, it's our, it's our words. We've said things, we've done things, we couldn't help the words from coming out. It's Like, well, okay, I'll keep my mouth shut, I won't say anything more. It's just, you, you, you feel the weight of these charges against you. It's say, well, no, I'll just keep it all inside. And that's not even enough, because in your heart, you're sinning. The root of all sin is in your heart, and you're thinking these things that... If it were posted on a billboard, you would be ashamed of. And the prosecution sees that as well, and you're guilty of that. And now you know you're hopeless because I can't even control my own heart. There's no way I could keep the law and be right. And so now we know that this punishment awaits us. The judge is before us. And what's the sentence that awaits us? It's imprisonment, a life sentence. It's chastisement it's being pierced it's being crushed in this prison and if that weren't enough the judge who is hearing the case before us is the one that we have been transgressing he's the one that the crimes have been committed against so what hope do we have for leniency there And you see this impending judgment. You feel the weight that David was feeling in Psalm 32 coming down on you. And he's raising his gavel. He's about to pronounce this judgment to you. And you know what it is because you're crying out right now. You say, I'm guilty. I'm guilty. I'm sorry. There's nothing I can stand. There's nothing I can do. I can't repay this debt. I can't make it right. There's nothing. I am guilty, but I want you to forgive me. And you've closed your eyes. You've come to this place where you're broken by your sin. And you're bowed down before him. This judge hold your life in his hands and you hear that gavel fall and you hear the judge's voice and you hear the word justified you hear not guilty and you think maybe I misheard this <laughs> you've laid out the case against me I am guilty if there's anyone that was guilty it is me you've proven it I know I'm guilty I'm not innocent and you lift your, your face to the judge and you're still blurry. Our eyes are still blurry from the tears. And you ask, well, how how can that be? And there is one answer and one answer alone to this. It's grace. And as you open your eyes, you see that this judge has meted out your punishment on himself. He bears your scars. The blood that you deserve from being wounded, from the punishment that you deserve. And the doors fly open, the shackles fall off, and you can walk away. That's it. You can just walk away as free men. And you say as you leave the courtroom, thank you. I will never forget this day and all that you've done for me. But what do we do as Christians? We forget that day. How can we Be happy. What is the secret? What is the key to happiness in life? It's not to forget that day, Christian. It's to think often and deeply about Christ and how because of Christ's love for you and his sacrifice on the cross for you, these words that just can become like a T-shirt or just ineffective because we hear them so often, we think about that. We think that we, because of Christ, are forgiven. We make time and effort to do those things which make us happy. So would we be those who, in wanting happiness, true happiness of our lives, make Christ our first thought in the morning as we rise? May we make it Christ's last thought as we put our head to bed that night, that I have been forgiven. I am forgiven. I'm free. I have been justified by faith because of what Christ has done. And that we would do this even when and especially when we don't want to do that. We don't feel like we need to do this. I'm okay, God. I don't need reconciliation today. I don't need forgiveness today. My life is pretty good. I got all that I need. Because it's in those moments that you need it the most. Because you're not a sinner because of x y and z sins you're a sinner by your nature you're a sinner because you have violated the first and great commandment which is to love the lord your god with all of your heart and soul and mind and strength and if you can get up in the morning and just go about your day and all the things that you're doing and you've not considered christ you have not loved god with all of your heart with all of your soul with all of your mind and with all of your strength so you sit there and the lack of feeling that you have in your heart in the morning or as you're going to bed at night and there's all these thoughts in your mind and you say you're not like David you listen to what David said we stop deceiving ourselves we acknowledge our sin Lord I do not love you as I ought to love you I don't value as I ought to value I have confessed my I'm confessing my transgressions to you and I know Lord even if I don't feel it today I know by your word that you are a God who is Faithful and just to forgive my sins. Even my sins of lovelessness and unbelief and faithlessness, you can forgive those and Christ would then become sweet. We would think about God wanting you to be happy and being happy in him. That is the secret or the key to a happy life.